This is the In Common Podcast. I am Michael Cox. In this episode, I spoke with Hallie Aiken, a professor in the School of Sustainability, College of Global Futures at Arizona State University. Hallie is currently on sabbatical with a Fulbright grant with the University of Cape Town. She took some time out to talk to us about her research on social adaptation and vulnerability in Mexico, Latin America, and in the American Southwest. We talked about her work and views on social adaptation and what we can call adaptation trade-offs, in which the reduction of risk in one direction can produce other costs and risks at the same or other scales. This reminds me of a point often made by resilience scholars that we cannot optimize a system for a particular output without undercutting other aspects of the system. We also talked about the importance of linking scales in our analyses through what Halley described as patterns of influence across decision-making arenas. This made a lot of sense to me as well, reminding me of the idea of action arena networks from the Ostrom School of Institutional Analysis. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Halley Aiken. Well, so Hallie, again, thanks for joining us. I, I've i been excited to talk to you for a few weeks because I, you know, I'm aware that you think about social vulnerability and adaptation and resilience and, and how these things relate and trying to um, apply these as lenses to local contexts, often, you know, within the con- within the context of larger dynamics, larger scale systems. And so that's a lot of that is very much how I'm trying to think in my own work. And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast um, think very similarly, where you start local, you're, you're concerned about issues of optimization versus flexibility. And you're also concerned about how larger scale processes affect um, what you're seeing on the ground. So I'd love to start with just asking you, this is kind of the origin story question, as I call it how you kind of ended up in this place. So I'm aware that you got your PhD at University of Arizona, where I have a few colleagues. I don't know if you know Tom Evans and Adela Schlager. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tom was actually on my dissertation committee way back when in Indiana University. Oh, um, and he's terrific. So you, you graduated from there, I think, in 2002, if I'm reading the That's internets right. correctly. Could you just talk to me about what led you to get that degree? And actually, I, I don't know if I saw what it was in. Is it, was it in culture anthropology? Was it in? It was geography with a minor in, in anthropology. Yeah. Okay. And so what did you yeah. focus on in your dissertation to kind of start your research career? Uh, well, you know, I, I think my, my research really started as an undergrad. And, you know, I, I sometimes tell my own undergrad students this, you know, don't say no to these opportunities that you just never know where they're going to lead, you know. So um, as an undergrad, I had the opportunity to do a thesis uh, under the direction of Robert Chen, uh, who was at season now or, or most recently um, in at Columbia, but at the time was at Brown University and in the world in their hunger program there. And um looked at the response to the 1992 drought, uh, which was one of the first droughts that was forecasted with an El Nino seasonal forecast. And it was just a fascinating experience. I mean, most of my, this was an undergrad, so I did most of my work by, you know, looking at newspaper reports and just trying to understand what was going on. But I can see even then, you know, this real interest in the politics of climate and climate response. And um, in that case was, you know, international donor pressure on the the National Grain Reserve in Zimbabwe, and it was sold off right before, um, you know, the drought really got uh, more acute. And then this, you know, of course, kind of, it's, it ties the decision-making at different scales to what actually are the circumstances for adaptation on the ground at any moment in time. Um, And, you know, really illustrated the different types of actors that are involved in vulnerability, which is, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, the government of Zimbabwe, farmer, you know, all of it at once. And I think that that's something that really has just really been a common theme throughout all of my, my work. So, 
uh, following that experience, I was lucky enough to get a, a job at the World Bank in the Southern Africa uh, Agriculture and Environment Division, you know, as a lowly project assistant. Um, but that was also really exciting for me because I could actually see the kind of those international politics at play and how they were shaping things on the ground in Malawi and, and Zimbabwe and Zambia. Um, and that led me to grad school, um, realizing that I just needed to understand better uh, from a more academic perspective, uh, poverty, hunger, food security, and, and adaptation. Um, so I thought I'd be working in Southern Africa, um, but I had the, another really fortunate event of falling into the, the, the orbit of uh, Diana Liverman, who um, was really specializing more in Latin America. That led me into work in climate forecasting and its potential for alleviating smallholder vulnerability in, um, in Mexico. Um, and I think, again, you know, what, what, you know, always starting at the household level and thinking about the decision making and the trade offs that, that households face, but then realizing so much of their vulnerability is, is out of their hands in the sense of being generated by policies and structures and processes that are, are at different levels. Um, and that, that uh, led me to my PhD, which I, you know, having found a really great thing with uh, Diana's leadership and she's just amazing. Um, continued to work at uh, U of A on my PhD, but this time really trying to understand explicitly that intersection of globalization market change, policy change at a national level and climate risk and how that intersects at the level of the household and kind of circumscribes decision-making and opportunity uh, for risk management. So that's, that's kind of the origin story and it's kind of been on a similar, you know, exploration of cross-scale intersections of multiple stressors on decision-making and um, the politics of those processes um, in the production of vulnerability and, and adaptation that have kept me motivated. Mm. Well, the, the World Bank piece is very interesting. I've had, I've been interested in a while in this uh, interface between academics and non-academic practitioners. And my own sense has been that there's not often a lot of communication across that divide. Did you ever think about going back to the World Bank after you got your PhD, given what it sounded like an initial positive experience? Um, I, well, when I left the World Bank and I was really young, I mean, I didn't have a graduate degree when I was working there. So um, my intention was certainly to go back, get a degree and get, you know, get back into the work that I had been doing, which was on uh, climate risk management and agriculture in, in sub-Saharan Africa, well, and particularly Southern Africa. But, um, you know, you just, one thing leads to another and, you know, it, it, it's, I still had research questions I wanted to ask. I considered doing, you know, kind of research administration type of positions where you would be in a more of a, those boundary organizations and facilitating applied research um, but then I realized I kind of wanted to do it myself. So, you know, and I was worried a little bit when I graduated from my PhD, it's just that the, these path dependencies of choices, would I be able to get back into academia if I decided to leave it? Um, and I wasn't convinced that that was going to be particularly early in your career where you haven't like, you know, accumulated publications and things, whether that would be uh, a challenge. So I, I didn't. Um, you know, and I continued with uh, some of the academic opportunities, but I certainly have considered those alternatives. Mm. And um, the World Bank was was fascinating because my undergraduate thesis really critiqued in a very kind of undergraduate naive way, you know, um, the international development community. I was, you know, this was the year of, you know, 50 years is enough. Um, a lot of, you know, social mobilization against, um, the World Bank and the IMF. And so, you know, I was, when I was working there, I ended up even crossing, you know, protests and it, it made me feel, because I had been out there, you know, writing pretty critically as an undergrad, of course, but, you know, it was, uh, it was really interesting and, and to find a lot of the, the narratives that um, are kind of told in a very, or at that time were being told in a very kind of uh, 
crude and unnuanced way, um, some of that was true. I mean, sitting in a boardroom on H Street with white men deciding whether Malawi should have a fertilizer subsidy or not. I mean, you, you, you just, you know, it, it, it's kind of amazing. Um, and then, but then of course, it's full of these brilliant people who are coming from all walks of life and all different cultures who have been motivated to do something constructive um, in the kind of poverty alleviation development domain and, you know, how their ideas end up becoming the World Bank is is a whole story in itself. Um, mm. But I had some wonderful mentors there when I was there who were really encouraging uh, for my career. So I'm, it was an amazing experience, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so Hallie, I know that there's, there's I want to spend a lot of time talking with you about this idea of adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to kind of preface it with telling you how I've been recently thinking about it sure. and then kind of get your, get your thoughts. So I've been, all right. So within the commons field, we think a lot about top down versus bottom up governance, right? And mm-hmm. we think about what's good and bad about either one top down is often vilified as being overly homogenizing as being command and controlly. There's this other narrative that says that bottom up is potentially more flexible and adaptive, particularly to local context. I think there's this kind of quasi-evolutionary framing. There is actually this literature on cultural evolution that argues the reason why human beings are able to go everywhere they are is because we, over time, we evolve institutions that fit with both our psychology and the local context. And so that all sounds good. So we've got like, and, and then you're thinking about all of these, like, and then my, your, your mind is thinking about all of these different local level adaptations and where you can find them to see how folks, you know, so also work like uh, by like Ficker Berkey's emphasizing a traditional ecological knowledge as being something that is adaptive, very much putting it in this like evolutionary framework. And then there's this literature from actually evolutionary biology. There's this famous paper by Stephen Jay Gould and Robert Lewontin called The Spandrels of San San Marco. And it was this famous paper in evolutionary biology that said, look, folks, we can't go around just assuming that everything's an adaptation. And that really resonated with some of the work of yours I've been reading, where you kind of problematize what we mean by an adaptation, saying that it is a bit political. It's not, we can't just assume it's this technical fix, particularly in the context of climate change. That paper had a big impact on the field of evolutionary biology. My evolutionary biology friends say that that field had really struggled with just being kind of naive adaptationists, Mm -hmm. coming up with these just-so stories about how this or that thing must be adaptive, treating it kind of as an assumption rather than a hypothesis to be tested. And, you know, evolutionary psychology has struggled with the same critique that, oh, like, why do we have ears? Well, they're here to, like, catch the wind. And that's must be like why they came around versus there being all kinds of other reasons why a trait might persist over time, other than it being adaptive. It might've, you know, piggybacked on some other trait that itself is adaptive. So there's all these other hypotheses that you would need to kind of rule out before you say, oh no, this is actually a local level adaptation. And actually one of my current favorite examples of this kind of critique playing out in the social institutional space is through a book by James Ferguson called The Anti-Politics Machine. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Mm. Okay, well, you're, you're not far from where he was studying, which is in Lesotho. Right. So he was studying World Bank, I think it was World Bank, development project in Lesotho. Books from like 1990. Really great book. Kind of a, now it kind of reads to me like a traditional development studies critique-ish book. And he critiques what he calls the bovine mystique among the livestock herders in rural Lesotho. Well, what he critiques is this assumption that the reason why the people kind of keep cows there is because of this kind of um, poverty-based aversion to risk. And so, okay, I'm keeping the cows as kind of capital in case something goes bad. And so I'm just going to keep them and not sell them, even though like in economic terms, it might be better for me to sell them if a drought's coming. And that's like what the bureaucrats thought, like, oh, this is like an adaptation. And they had the story about why this was happening. And then Ferguson goes into, no, it's actually very complicated. It involves power relationships between uh, as much as anything, men and women, because livestock in these communities is very much a male 
thing, like the men own the livestock. So if a, a man wants to hold on to livestock in part because this empowers him vis-a-vis -vis the women in his life, hmm. the women feel very differently about this practice. And so he talks about, it really resonated with some of the stuff you've been writing, which is why I wanted to preface this and, and get your take on it. Mm. That there's this narrative I heard there. It's like, we can't just assume that everything's an adaptation because a lot of what you're seeing, what we call an adaptation is really like this sequential kind of strategic behaviors. I'm adapting to you and then someone else adapts to me. And then who's, who's bearing the costs of what we're doing. So mm -hmm. I would just love to hear how much what I'm saying resonates with how you understand the utility of the word adaptation and the traps that we can kind of fall into. Does this resonate with how you've used the word adaptation in your empirical work? Yes. I mean, although I must admit I'm, I'm, you know, less, I haven't, you know, really framed what I've done in kind of um, with evolutionary biology or, you know, really looked into that, that, that perspective, but I do resonate with the idea that we, we need to interrogate the terms that we're using. And particularly when we're working with people, we need to understand it from their perspective. And so, you know, whether that's vulnerability, you know, we easily can look at a statistic and say, gosh, this family lost 80% of their harvest, they are vulnerable. And, you know, I've had this, you know, interesting experiences working in, in central Mexico. Um, this was in the Valley of Toluca. And, you know, looking at this flood data and, you know, farmlands that had been completely flooded, complete wash of their harvest, going in to ask about coping strategies and adaptations and adjustments. And, and these, it was just very odd. The families just didn't seem to be generally that concerned you know, often when I'm talking about these disasters, you have an emotional and effective response. And here I just, I didn't see any, any indication that there was this significant loss um, that, that would have been an indicator to me of, of substantive vulnerability. And, you know, probing this, it turned out that, you know, the, the area of this particular uh, community had been basically uh, subject to a lot of urbanization, households had diversified, you know, they, yes, they lost their harvest, but that was no longer the primary source of income. You know, they had a very different attitude about the function of that land. And so, you know, we can't, we ha have to understand these terms from their perspective and um, what, what, this, what these terms mean in those contexts. Um, and it's the same for, for adaptation. I think, um, I think adaptation needs to be understood in terms of, you know, are people, what are we, what do we mean by adaptation? Are they adapting to climate? Is this a, an adjustment to some sort of market stress? Um, you know, and to what extent does this actually reduce their vulnerability and in what ways, you know, and that I think can hold somehow hold us in check from just kind of you know, saying that as, as, you know, Siri Erickson, who I've, I've collaborated with, you know, that all adaptation is good. You know, we're not, mm. you know, what do we mean by, you know, we kind of think of it as a normatively positive and constructive uh, activity, but I think it can be a burden. It can be a very significant burden, particularly for households of limited resources. And yes, they're adaptive, but does this set them ahead? Does this make them, you know, yes, they cope, they can survive, but does this make them uh, less vulnerable into the future? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, I was, we interviewed Sarah Miro, who's another professor at Arizona yes. State University, and she, um, we, she and I talked a lot about resilience and urban resilience, and she has this piece where she interrogates resilience in kind of a similar way. Yeah. And the question, it makes have my students read it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And to me, one of the punchlines is, is, you know, it's, it's resilience to what for whom right right you in order to use this concept meaningfully and effectively you, you need to you need to ask that question because it's going to benefit some people and it's resilient to what some things and not other things it's not like this blanket blanket compliment we can pay an actor or a system we, we need to get a lot more precise than that so it sounds like you're kind of saying some similar things about adaptation yeah and and you know what and part of my work here in cape town is is looking at um 
you know, the, these relationships between, and this goes, I think, to your kind of comments about scale earlier um, and the commons and, you know, kind of local bottom up, top down, you know, it's really about relationships and it's about um, social relationships and political relationships. And these do bridge scales or levels of organization. Um, and they also have very asymmetrical power uh, involved in them. And so as when we're thinking about risk in a system uh, in which people have different functions and positions um, and different scope of influence, risk can be shifted. You know, my adaptation can increase the risk for somebody else. You know, my, by, by facilitating somebody else's burden of adaptation, I alleviate my own responsibility for having to account for that. So I think when we think of adaptation in a human context in which most of us are living in these complex relationships and somewhere in the world, um, that's happening all the time. We're shifting both the physical stress somewhere else, we're the financial burden, we're shifting uh, you know, some of the psychological costs, the emotional burden. And I think we have to take that into account. So, and that requires these multiple layers of analysis and collaboration so that we can see across scales. And this was really mm. illustrated to me when I was in Mexico looking at uh, coffee farmers, because we were looking at some of the, um, you know, hazards that farmers were facing in Chiapas. And one of the strategies that was clearly adaptive or a, a, a helpful coping strategy was farmers who were not didn't have all their eggs in one basket, weren't solely coffee producers, had diversified into maize, yet they're farming on fairly steep slopes and having patches of land that are cleared for maize production also can make farmers vulnerable to landslides in uh, heavy rainfall conditions. And so it le led me to think about, you know, if I only focus on the household, all of this sounds good and resilient and, and strategic and yay diversification. If I think about it at a landscape scale, I'm suddenly concerned about like how much land can be cleared and what formation and what patches to actually be, you know, maintain slope stability. And how is this all related? What if 30% of the farmers decide to switch into cattle or, you know, at what point do we cross thresholds at which the system becomes you know, less tenable um, in, in terms of exposure to, to risk. And so I think almost in any comp system that we're looking at, we have to take those uh, systemic viewpoints. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you reminded me of a paper of yours I was looking at in environmental science and policy where you talk about folks in Mexico City adapting to flood risks and water scarcity, but then shifting kind of their own burden and, and maybe what's the word I want? Cause you also use like the poverty trap lens here where, yeah, yeah. we'll go for it if you want, but I was going to try to. Yeah, sure. Well, sure, it sounds like the challenge was that they're adapting to one disturbance, but in some ways they're further entrenching themselves, or at least they're not mitigating the overall poverty trap dynamic by this kind of, and, and to me, this distinction, and I've, I've You've either said it or I've, I've read it from you. This distinction between like adapting versus coping seems to be very powerful and important here, right? When are we actually adapting in a more a deeper sense, a more holistic sense? And I know the resilience people talk about, oh well, look, you know, we don't want this adaptation; we want transformation, the biggest, deepest adaptation there is. Versus coping feels like you know, in our own in, in our own personal lives, this is very, you know, we all deal with this question ourselves, right? Like, am I adapting to actually change my behavior in ways I want? Or am I just coping for today and I'm going to have to pay for this like in two weeks because I'm not actually dealing with my fundamental problems. So it, it feels like that distinction is playing a large role in several of these cases for you. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I know, definitely. And, and this, this observation has gone way back where, you know, I, in a lot of the, the political ecology work that I was reading when I was a grad student, it seemed to me that, that there was this kind of celebration in a sense of the, the peasant farmer condition and the strategies that farmers were pursuing, which, which are you know, a huge source of innovation. And you know, agroecology is based on a lot of the practices of small farmers um, and, and local knowledge and how that's been developed. But 
we can't also deny that farmers are poor in many of these contexts. And really their living standards are not desirable on, for, they would articulate that, that they're not the way they would be or desired to be. And while th those conditions are not necessarily a, a product of the strategies that they're pursuing in the sense that inevitably they would have to be poor. I think agroecologists, for example, have, have demonstrated that um, you know, many of these strategies, if given the appropriate circumstances, can be very productive and very um, well-being enhancing. But the context in which they are producing, they're bearing a lot of that risk of how they, and, and, it, and this was, uh, you know, we kind of consolidated our thinking about this when I was working with Maria Carmen Lemos and Don Nelson, who also worked in rural uh, adaptation issues um, uh, in Brazil. And the idea that, you know, we can't think of that all the capacities uh, that we often list as adaptive all work in the same direction. And there may actually be trade-offs. There may be trade-offs between investing in resources and strategies that specifically address a particular risk. You're trying to cope with flooding. So you put a lot of energy into flood risk management or heat or, or drought, but you're not necessarily able to put the similar effort into your education or your health or your income, that there may actually in some circumstances be those significant trade-offs, particularly, and this is where the kind of cross-level issues come into play, if there are no broader level institutions that are absorbing some of that, either absorbing some of that specific risk capacity, so they're providing insurance or there's a, you know, a drought risk payout for uh, you know, small farmers, or you have some sort of institutional safety net, um, or on the uh, you know, free education or you know, some, something to help you mediate those trade-offs. And so the poverty trap is when you have an absence of that higher level support structure and you're not only bearing all of the risk, but you have no support for your, what we call generic capacities of you know, the kind of capacities that would help you deal with lots of different types of stresses. And so we see those in particular cases where the more you try to cope, you're the, you know, the farther you're getting behind. Um, and then there may be some other cases where, and I'm sure this is very, you know, also very recognized in the commons literature of communities that have developed some organizational capacity that help share the burden of risk. And so that alleviates the individual from having to do it all themselves. But if there's not a lot of additional resources coming in and, you know, governance at higher scales, you may have uh, still problems with kind of getting ahead. And then there's the situations like most of, you know, middle-class families in Phoenix who, you know, really are shielded from risk. You know, we turn on our air conditioning, we, you know, we can afford our water bills, you know, everything basically functions so that we can invest our resources in our 401ks and our, you know, our education plans and our you know, other things that enhance our generic capacities. Um, but mm. we don't have much specific capacities. You pull out those institutional structures and we don't know what to do in a heat wave. You know, so, so the point with this, these thinking about capacity is to try to think, okay, we need to disaggregate this and see how public institutions, communal institutions, governance operates so that it is distributing risk management and ability to invest in the kind of generic attributes of well-being that we value in sustainable development. Um, and that those aren't always working in the same direction. Um, and so in the case that you're, you're mentioning in the, the, the article we wrote in um, Environmental Science and Policy, you know, this is a case in which households are bearing a lot of that burden for flood risk management in urban areas and for water quality management. And it's a significant part of their income and not only part of their income, but it's part of their time. So somebody has to be around to deal with that. Well, you can't be dealing with that risk and having a job that runs from, you know, seven to five and every day, or somebody has to be home to receive the water. You know, so there are these 
trade-offs that in aggregate, the hypothesis is that it begins to erode on your generic capacities and kind of hold you back in terms of poverty alleviation. Hmm. Um, and, and that we can't just focus on risk management and think that that's enough. We have to think about how it interacts with other abilities of households to move into other, you know, and invest in other things that they need. And particularly hmm. those in some places, it may not even be appropriate to try to build risk management capacity at a household level. We may need to be thinking, actually, this has to be a higher level activity. We need to be shielding these households from having to manage in the first uh, place. risk. Um, they, they, it's, it's having such a cost that it's keeping them into literal poverty traps. Um, where in communities of affluence, maybe we need to be talking about how they need to be pulling their weight a little bit more in risk management. Um, and that leads to this other idea of that perhaps adaptation isn't limit, you know, it isn't um, infinite. I mean, we, it's, it's not that we can all live at the same level of protected protection from risk uh, that we've been accustomed to in much of in the developed, you know, westernized, industrialized context, uh, that may not be an ideal anymore that we can say will be universal, that we all hmm. can live in our bubbles of, uh, we have to face it. And what are we going to do? So, yeah, the bubble metaphor is powerful to me. I, I increasingly feel like we're, we're kind of whole, as a system, we kind of hold on tighter and tighter to not looking at the things that are happening around us. And we just approach this point of, of being pretty fragile because we haven't been facing things because things are so nice when you are shielded from them. But the longer you hold on to that, maybe the worst things might be when you finally do have to face things. That's what I think uh, we refer to as, uh, well, we didn't refer to it. It's a concept, I think, um, his name is Burby, I think, and who wrote about uh, Katrina, the, the safe development paradox, you mm. know, where you're, you're in this kind of paradox of feeling safe and secure and investing all this resources in your own well-being. And, and, um, and as soon as that's pulled out from under you, you find that you really don't have, you know, have the, the abilities to manage it on your own, where a, a very what we think of as a kind of classically vulnerable population that has always had to deal with that risk, maybe perfectly with a certain degree of variability, be able to cope with, you know, crisis in, mm -hmm. and come out, but they're never getting ahead because it's a, it's a huge burden for them. Right. So Hallie, what, um, I think this word has come up maybe once or twice during this conversation. And, and I'd like to ask a question about it. What is the role of diversity in being being able to adapt is it can can we make blanket statements does the more diverse you can you, you kind of talked about livelihood diversity a little bit earlier like what is your take on diversity and its relationship to say vulnerability and adaptability it's such a tricky question and i think it's something that we haven't resolved um you know it 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 seems nice to say more is better um but everything has a cost. And so, you know, at what point does diversification become something that doesn't actually, again, you know, set you ahead and you manage the, the stress. But so, I mean, I, I remember feeling that I had found it when I was in um, researching for my dissertation in this village in, of vegetable farmers in, um, in Puebla. And you know, all these farmers would talk of their very small areas, you know, two hectares or less of land, and they would be planting typically in any season, they would be specializing in one crop, you know, be cabbage or cilantro or whatever it was. And often they would face at the time of harvest failure, um, either because of a climate or pest problem, or often because the, the price just dropped out of the market. And so by the time they had to harvest, they couldn't, couldn't get it to market. And it seemed frustrating to me. I was well, why are you only planting cilantro? You're putting everything in one basket, you know? And, and, um, and yeah, you know, they would shrug. And I said, well, is there, you know, is there anyone who does it differently? And I had, you know, visions of, you know, agroecological and polyculture farming. A cornucopia and, you know, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they sent me to this, this 
this uh, farmer down this, who was a poquitero, they said, uh, you know, somebody who does a little bit of everything. And, um, you know, he came to the door, not at all, this is, a, you know, an N of one, <laughs> but not at all somebody who exuded prosperous, you know, success in his, his, his farming. But it turned out that the poquiteros, if you're trying to do this with two hectares of land, have very few market opportunities. Um, and so if you are only producing a small volume of any one crop, you only can be sold, selling in the open markets, the, the, um, just the open markets where you, you, know, you sell to a broker who has a stall and you know, sells a little bit of everything. Um, but the prices that you're going to get there typically are going to be much lower than what you could get if you were selling wholesale to a larger scale broker. Like along um, with some other farmers in some kind of co-op situation? Yeah. Well, the, no, they would they would be just taking a pickup truck of their zucchini or whatever it is okay. to the, the wholesale market. And there'd be a broker there who would be representing, I don't know, a supermarket chain or whatever okay. and would be purchasing the pickup trucks as they came in. Um, so, you know, it, it, it wasn't a panacea, you know, it wasn't an answer. It wasn't, it was an alternative, but it, it, you know, again, why weren't more farmers doing it? They were all aware of the strategy. They didn't see that it was going to get them any further along. And, you know, I didn't pursue it, you know, more to try to explore, you know, what were the real barriers to, you know, farming small amounts and to, you know, the, cause you have to get into the different institutional arrangements of a wholesale market versus a, you know, open market. And, you know, is, is there a mafia that controls the prices and the access? And, you know, it, it becomes a, a complex question of opportunity and risks. And so diversity alone, you know, is, yes, of course, it's going to help mediate a pest problem or, a, you know, some sort of climatic hazard, but it's not a guarantee that it's going to make you have a, a, a more secure livelihood. Well, it's, uh, and we it's as, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, it's, it's to me, this is reinforcing something you've said earlier in this interview, right? You can't just look at one scale. You need to look beyond the household at the farm level and try to understand what institutions it's engaging with if you want to understand what's going to work for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what kind of, I mean, the maize and coffee issue is also really interesting to me, like, um, you know, different strategies that are viable in a particular geography what, what is the configuration, you know, in not only in terms of the livelihood and, you know, you need to have certain number of adults to be able to diversify because you can't, you know, one person can't be doing three different jobs necessarily. You need, so our, does the family have children that are living at, you know, as adults at home? Do they have, you know, the sufficient land? This is another issue that was interesting and um, in terms of maize, which is such an important subsistence crop, but it doesn't often supply the income that is needed to sustain a, a small farmer. And so they need the cash crop. So what is the balance between the subsistence versus the cash? And, you know, what, you know, if you only have two hectares to begin with, how do you make that diversification strategy where you're guaranteeing something to eat, you're guaranteeing something for the market, you know, and, and then at what landscape scale does that diversity become problematic, you know, so, or an advantage, you know, on what indicators, biodiversity, you know, risk, mm -hmm. you know, so, so I, I, um, I struggle with this, but I think they're interesting. What I like about the theory is that it gives you material to work with. And as long as you're open to be critical, you know, and say, you know, we have a hypothesis that the more diverse is going to be more adaptive, um, but let's explore it and see under what conditions and under what context this is actually working mm -hmm. for households, uh, whether it's livelihoods or whether it's number of crops or whether it's type of crops or whether it's, you know, type of water sources, um, you know, what, what does it mean? And, and, and in the local context, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I really like that. It reminds me of when I first got involved in the Resilience Alliance and I just loved it. It was, it kind of spoke to me in a kind of almost spiritual way. Some of these concepts I really love the ideas. And then of course, like when you, okay, but how do you actually measure this? Is resilience always good? Like, how do you actually make it do work for you in the world? Like, that's a whole other question other than just having it make you feel good when you read, you know, the panarchy. 
Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of people have had these similar struggles of going from a concept that really, it feels good and it feels good in a way that kind of connects with a part of your sense of professional or personal self, but then going beyond that, um, I think is the challenging, but also the important bit. Um, okay. So another, uh, two related questions, and this might get to this project that I know we want to talk about the mega mega adapt, I think is what it's called project that you mentioned to me. So if we focus on the household, um, but then we know that we need to understand cross-scale dynamics. One question I have is, you know, there are power relations, households aren't unitary actors. They're not kind of one unit with unitary interests, right? And they're actually, I'm aware that in, I don't know, it's 80s and 90s, maybe there was this thing called like the unitary household act, like model of the unitary household. And the critique of that to me kind of unsurprisingly was, well, you know, no, like say men and women in households do not have the same interests. They don't have the same levels of power. They don't have the same amount of agency and opportunity costs. Um, you know, women by in many places, right, face more constraints. They're, they're relatively disempowered vis-a-vis property rights relative to the men in their lives. So when you start with the household, it seems like you want to, you know, there's a level below that and there's a level above that. And so this kind of the larger question is like, how do we actually, because actually, Hallie, when I hear about cross scale, it's one of these other ideas that sounds great to me. Like I want to do it. And then like in my own work, I've, it's, it's hard, right? Like my own empirical fieldwork is in the Dominican Republic and I work with farmers and fishers there. And I would love to do some kind of like commodity chain of rice there and, and really go, you know, upscale. And, but it turns out that that's a lot of work and that's like quite difficult and you're interviewing a whole different set of people. So I'd love to just get your take on how we implement and how we unpack these cross-scale dynamics, starting with how, you know, how have you perceived it to be important and when to kind of unpack this idea of the household going down to the smaller scale. And then I'd love to ask you like what empirically, what does it mean to go up? and look at things at the larger scale, like for, and I'm thinking also about, you know, PhD students who might be listening to this and thinking to themselves too, like, oh, that's so cool. I want to do that. But, but how do I, how, who do I talk to? What kind of data am I collecting? What does it actually look like? Yeah, really tricky. And it's hard as we get, you know, further into our careers, we get embedded in these larger collaborative groups, which really facilitates, right. <laughs> you know, not only doing the work, but integrating the work, because it's, you don't only need tools for kind of understanding, but you need tools for kind of integration. And, and um, I think that's, that has been very exciting to me, but also really challenging because, you know, it's not always my my own toolkit. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, I mean, the point about households and not being, you know, a unit, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think I'm very guilty of kind of relying on households as a kind of convenient unit um, for the purposes of the work that I've done, which is usually about decision-making in, with regards to a particular resource or activity. And so finding who is making those decisions. And of course, decisions is far more complicated in terms of who is actually influencing whether or not the person says I was the one who decided, you know, Mm -hmm. we, you know, and I, I must admit, I don't think I do a a good job of unpacking within the household, those dynamics. My work has not addressed gender explicitly as a kind of a central, um, you know, uh, as part of the research questions, mm-hmm. um, although it has come up repeatedly in a lot of the work that I've done, you know, on income diversification, you know, the women who are doing one strategy, the men and the other, and how those are competitive or complementary in particular contexts, um, or in the work in Mexico City of, you know, women really bearing the burden of a lot of the adaptation management uh, in terms of water risk at the household as a kind of domestic task. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does this mean for women being able to work, you know, outside the home or, you know, go to school or, you know, I mean, these little intangible erosions of capacity um, that, you know, how do we account for that? I don't know. But it's so um, I think there's a lot more work I could be doing in that in that uh, level. But 
for me, the connection is really not about levels so much as decisions, as decisions and trying to find like who, who is making or what what actor organization or just who is is has an influence. It's kind of like your basic stakeholder analysis, you know, who has an influence over the dynamics that we are interested in understanding. And mapping that out, you know, gets you into big bubbles like this organization, that organization, as well as these farmers or these. But what is exciting is really trying to think about the mechanisms of that influence. And so if your unit of analysis is a phenomena like hydrological risk in Mexico City, then you're trying to kind of, you know, it, it opens up the box from saying, oh, I just need to look at the water sector, you know, water managed. No, no, no. You need to also think about land use and you need to think about housing. And, you know, it, it's not as if you look at it only as a sectoral problem and then go to the kind of um, usual suspects, you know, you're, you're, you're not thinking about this in a kind of networked way. Um, and, and so I think that's one of the, the approaches kind of instead of follow, well, following the money also helps, but <laughs> following the decisions um, and the influence and kind of hypotheses about influence, I think helps kind of identify who and where you want to kind of probe um, and what kind of information you might be interested in looking at. And so that has led in the kind of mega dot project, we've looked at you know, households, I'm very interested in households managing their own risk. Um, we've looked at households or farmers actually on the watershed because they have an influence on land use and land use affects, or the hypothesis is that land use affects water. Um, and then we have to think about, well, who manages, what organizations are responsible for managing those critical resources? So land, water, and then the housing became something that was incredibly it was kind of an emergent issue. And you, we realized that the reason why people are in, you know, invading, <laughs> we didn't realize this, but we, it became more um, prominent in our research, even though we had, were aware of it earlier, you know, it's because the, the lack of housing in the city um, and public housing. And so, you know, in face of, and it really opened up this kind of problem that, that flooding and water scarcity isn't an issue of water supply and demand. It's about, it's about rights to the city um, and you know, who has a legitimate say in, in, in place and recognition within the city and how our service is provided. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in, in the jargon of my field, there's this idea that there are different like action situations or decision-making sure. arenas. Yeah. And we look at those as networks. And so you say, okay, yeah. here's the focal situation that I want to understand, but that's connected to other decisions that other people yes. make. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, we've, I'm familiar with this, this framing as well. And uh, yes, networked action arenas. Oh yeah. You know, okay. thinking of, yeah. Uh, and the institutional ties that bridges, bridge those different um and also one of the things that I think has become more prominent in the mega dot work and really something I'm, I'm interested in pursuing further is, is the narratives that connect these actors. And mm. so who, who is shaping the story about the problem and the domain of action? You know, who mm. is setting those and, and what are the assumptions uh, and the, the power relations in, in that process? Mm. Um, and I think that to me also shifts your, units of analysis in a sense, because you're, you're looking at who has not only an influence directly over the resource, but how we talk about the resource and, you know, how we even think about the resource um, or the problem at hand. Mm. And that, that is, that's also really exciting because it leads into, you know, other unexpected territory perhaps. Mm. So I should have I should have led with this question because I think it'll be helpful to take a step back and actually ask you who is involved in the Megadap program. It sounds like quite a big interdisciplinary project. Could you talk just a bit about like how this got started and who's collaborating on it to do you know and why are they trying to work together? <laughs> yeah. So this project is finished now. Um, mm. The funding's done. So it, we finished just as 
the border with Mexico closed in 2020, March 2020. Oh, wow. I, literally, I was down there uh, when Mar University said no more international travel, and we were having our last project project meeting. So, um, but yes, it, it's it's uh, it was an interesting and it has been a, a you know kind of a transformative experience for me because as you know, I most of my work was in rural areas with livelihoods and farming and food issues. Um, but as I moved to ASU, you know, ASU isn't really known in a sense for rural work. Um, it's, and a lot of my colleagues were focused on urban, urban issues. And, and I also had a young child and, you know, thinking about, you know, where I wanted to do field work and do I want to be going out into, and uh, this also coincides with Mexico, unfortunately, and tragically, a lot of the rural areas becoming less and less viable for doing um, some of the kind of investigative or work, uh, work that my colleagues in Mexico were doing. Um, it was just dangerous, frankly, for for some of the, you know, sending out people to and students and such. So, so things coincided to see if we could rethink opportunities for Mexico ASU collaboration, but um, framing it differently in a way that would be different for me, but would be allow me to bring in more of my colleagues um, and see where I could find new, new synergies. So um, that's what spawned this idea of working uh, in urban areas. And we got uh, some resources to do some preliminary like project team building, you know, conceptualization work, which was fantastic. Um, and that brought colleagues from Mexico and uh, the university, the, and they were, we were already collaborating with them because they were interested in developing a graduate program in sustainability science, one of the first such programs in Mexico. And so, um, you know, we brainstormed issues, what would be something that we could all contribute to in some way, and the problem of water in Mexico City emerged as a real, uh, you know, kind of central theme that that everyone was really interested in. And it's not that this was novel, and I want to stress this, there's so much fantastic work in Mexico on water and water vulnerability, and we knew that we would not be generating new findings about who or what is vulnerable and, and you know, what, but, but the idea was really synthetic, you know, how can we create some sort of uh, instrument, in this case, um, uh, a kind of dynamic model and a process that would allow us to pull together some of this very critical social science work with this qualitative or historical and grounded in, you know, in case studies with some of the more engineering and uh, larger scale system dynamics and hydrological work um, and thinking about the system in a new way as a coupled dynamic social ecological or social hydrological system um, in which we would put at the fore, you know, foreground the idea that vulnerability is not produced by exogenous forces, but is actually produced by the decisions of actors in the system in a continual basis with the natural environment and endogenize those decision processes in a way that would make, we hoped would kind of provide new avenues for thinking about solutions instead of saying, oh, we just need to control the rainfall and the runoff and the, you know, and, but actually saying, no, it's actually the way that we're at implementing our thinking about this that is, is creating the problem. Um, and so that was the, that was the inspiration and in that we would be able to create a model that would serve not as something that would be predictive, but really in the sense of an exploratory model that, that would challenge the way people are thinking and, and try to um, you know, be transgressive in that sense of, of pushing people's narratives and saying, are our assumptions about what and why this vulnerability is what it is really pan out if we try to simulate this in some um, way and and would this make us think differently about the problem mm. and so the colleagues involved you know it was at one point i think we had somehow we had 26 different colleagues and most of them in mexico and fantastic work in mexico city they did a lot of the modeling in fact almost all of the modeling for us um, in their uh, new um, laboratory for sustainability sciences 
and great field work support from Mexican uh, students. You know, it was just a, it was a great um, experience, I think, in trying to do engaged and um, creative work and got some good theses coming out of it. And um, yeah, a few more publications probably to write up just to kind of make sure all the information is out there, but uh, it, it sounds really extraordinary, yeah. Uh, and who funded it? It was a National Science Foundation CNH, CNH project. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Hallie, um, maybe the last question I know I want to ask you is about this project. Um, so referring back to words that sound really nice, but then become a bit of a pain, uh, interdisciplinarity sounds great, right? And there's a lot of us who are like, oh, we need to be more interdisciplinary. And then when it comes down to actually doing it, it turns out it's really hard for a variety of reasons. And one of the traps I think we fall into in interdisciplinary projects is the baton model of science where we're on a relay race, I run my social science lap, someone else runs their ecology lap and we just hand off the baton when someone's done. We don't really integrate what people are doing. Have you perceived that to be a challenge in your own interdisciplinary efforts? And if you have been able to kind of move beyond that, how do you think that happened? That's a real, uh, I could talk for another hour about this. <laughs> this um, so, you know, I think we, you know, I hear and I read about these wonderful projects and and I think they, they do exist. And I, I had a really good experience in some aspects of our project. Um, it was a challenge for me as a social scientist. Um, and I would also say maybe as a woman um, leading this, this project, um, it was a challenge not only to do interdisciplinary work, but to do international interdisciplinary work um, and you know where you have different roles of the universities in relation to their countries so I mean UNAM in Mexico is the national university and what UNAM says and does it, it matters in a, in a very significant political way um, where I don't think we can say with any one university in the U.S. has that kind of influence so you know, it's it's a very different circumstances, um, and the you know there there are different gender roles, and you know in different disciplines, and you know so all of this is layered into this project that we did. I think one of the challenges that I realized is that if you are truly interested in the integration, so the product that we were producing was the output that was really going to be the innovation, not the not the hydrological model that feeds into it, not necessarily my interview data, you know, that may not, it might prove some, you know, nice empirical findings, but the, the punchline is in the integration. And if you're gonna get there, you need to start with that, that design idea and have everybody committed to feeding into that process with the independence and the autonomy to pursue their pet projects and their interests and their you know, disciplinary depth. Um, but often what is required for that, that, that boundary object is actually relatively um, unexciting in the disciplinary sense. And it's only in the accumulation that it actually comes to be, you know, it's the emergence of something that's really exciting. And so to, to get scholars who are at the top of their field to be willing to put the time and the legwork into that type of integration is really challenging. And that's where I find that when we talk about transdisciplinarity scholarship, we need to be thinking about what's required for that kind of thing. It's not the easy publication in your disciplinary journal. It takes time, it takes effort. You have to go back to the drawing board. You thought your model fit the bigger problem and then you found that, you know, it doesn't, it's whatever's wrong with the way you, you know, it doesn't fit, the puzzle isn't fitting together. You know, I mean, even in our project, we had a really interesting, you know, process of working with the concept of mental models. Mm. And we wrote the whole project together. We, you know, we thought we understood what we were talking about, but it turns out 
you know, the modeling team had one idea of what the mental model was and the social scientists were collecting information about something else, you know, and so we had to kind of come together, go back, get other information. Um, and we're still negotiating and it comes up when we're writing. We're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, you're not writing about what, what I think you're writing. <laughs> so it's, it's really time consuming and um, I find very rewarding and exciting work, but I can understand that it's not for everyone. And I think that um, sometimes what we need is somebody to provide an input and say, we're just gonna contract you to provide an input you can go back to your lab or whatever and do whatever you're doing. And we won't, you know, and we won't bother it. you. <laughs> we won't bother you again. Um, but we also need to have a lot of those synthesizers and integrated people, really talented, synthetic people who can pull it together and think about the synergies and how the analysis takes place and how to communicate that, which is a whole nother ballgame. Um, you know, so we had a great graduate student who did a, who designed a serious game because we wanted to communicate back to the communities where we had worked, but we didn't think the GIS model, you know, platform would be something that would mean anything to them. Um, and so she was great. She created this, you know, together working with Marco Janssen and, you know, created this really cool game that allowed us to engage in a different way with a different community but we needed somebody who was willing to take the time to do that you know and um so i guess the long answer to the question is yes it's critical yes it's really difficult and um we probably need to talk more about the challenges than just kind of glorify the the team science and you know and i'm not even talking about transdis you know truly transdisciplinary work where you're involving non-academic stakeholders in publications and in outputs and you know th that process which i think is another layer of complexity and, and stickiness yeah I mean, i'm really fighting the urge to just start the, the interview over to just talk about serious games because i've wanted to like nerd out about that for a long time but i mean it does seem like one of the things i'm hearing is i mean think some of these things too take time and a concern i have in academia is there's this really great book whose authors I can never remember, but it doesn't stop me from recommending it called The Slow Professor. Oh, and it's a, it's a critique mm. of kind of the productivist mindset we've fallen into in academia of always getting needing to do the next thing, you know, viewing grants, not as inputs, but as outputs in their own right, getting on a kind of publication treadmill mm. that to me increasingly feels like a kind of arm. We have publication inflation. We have this kind of arms race where you know, five publications isn't what it was. Back in my day, five publications, right, would buy you a candy bar and now, right, or get you a postdoc or whatever. And so now it's it's just, there's, it's more and more and more. And I think it's a, it's not limited to one field. Like I have some psychology friends and they talk about how nuts it's gone in their field. And to me, part of the lesson is, and part of the challenge is that it's, you know, and it relates to what you said, if I'm a, if I'm a, top person and I'm cranking, I've got my machine going and I'm, you know, I'm getting that, this, and the other thing, really departing from that to, to get into a space that doesn't feel productive where I'm not feeling efficacious, right? Which is a lot of the, you know, a lot of what keeps a lot of us going is feeling of, of strong competence in our work that we can get things done and, and be yeah. productive. Departing from that and slowing down without necessarily a lot of social social norm support is a big leap yep yep well we could start over again i mean i we haven't even talked about this other work that um, i've been engaging but it speaks directly to this on transformation um sustainability transformations and just this last few weeks we've been discussing um, transformative methodologies and um, the whole concept of transformation and what, what it means uh, not only for you know, what happens out there, but what happens in here and the kind of reflexive um, process that is necessary for researchers to also engage in if we're going to be doing work that we think or we would like to have, uh, you know, a transformative effect. And so that whole work has been something that I've really felt, you know, I'm not leading it, I'm participating in, in a lot of this. And it's, uh, um, 
with the step center or the step center is now, I guess it's the last year, year of the step center. So, but that work has been really interesting and has been very much about talking with people who are non-academics about how they've gone through, uh, you know, what personal development they've had in order to be impactful and transformative in their approach and their, and it's just, it's been inspiring. And I, you know, it makes you really mm. think about the craziness of our, our world. And also it reflects back, I mean, just to conclude it, it kind of reflects back our intent in the, the MegaDAP project to challenge the narrative. I mean, it's, it's just as, you know, we, we think vulnerability is coming from the sky and sense of, you know, rain and, mm. but, but it's us, it's us who are creating, you know, we're the ones who are creating the norms. We're the ones who are reinforcing them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just so we need a mega, we need something that kind of makes us go, oh, geez, you know, these are the mechanisms that are just keeping us in this craziness, you know? Um, so anyway, I mean, it's, I will get there someday, I think in academia, but I'm trying now as a senior professor to try to, to take advantage of that and, uh, mm. you know, let myself explore and, you know, consider that that's what I'm here in Cape Town for, uh, yeah, to be yeah. inspired and, you know, so what about the publications and, and really try to think deeply about these issues. And I would encourage you to, <laughs> do, the to do the same. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, Hallie, are there other um, topics you want to make sure we cover before we sign off, things that we didn't get to? I think we've covered a lot of ground, and thank you for the opportunity to chat, and um, it's been fun. And uh, yeah, hope great. It continues in other domains. <laughs> yes, well, thanks again for your time. This was great. I'll be in touch. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.